scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and we are on page 791 in the pew Bibles. Mark, Mark 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the scribes and the Pharisees asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had... Sorry. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then there are, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Thank you, Ted. Well, it's hard to believe it's already... Late August and school's getting ready to start, and how many of you kids are excited about school starting? Both hands, awesome, <clears throat> all right. Parents, how many of you are excited that school is starting? Any of you, any of you excited? Oh, there we go, There's some more hands. What do you know? <clears throat> yeah, hard to believe we're already there towards the end of, getting towards the end of 2023, and lots of exciting things coming up. Awana workers meeting this coming Wednesday. So, getting ready for a wanted to start back in school and all that good stuff. So, 
Excited for all this. We're excited also to look at Mark chapter 7 this morning. I would like to begin just by praying and asking God to help us as we look at His Word this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. Thank You that You have not left us in the dark, but You have given us clear communication about who You are, about who we are, and about what You have done about who we are. And so we pray this morning that as we have our Bibles open, that you would open our hearts also to hear the truths of your word this morning. And we pray that as we encounter you and your word this morning, that you would do a transforming work in each of us, that we would grow, that our hearts would be affected by what you have to say in your word here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we look at Mark chapter 7, we are looking at a passage of crucial importance. I mean, that's what everyone says, right? When they give a speech or when they, read a, or when they write a book or something, it's always, this is the most important thing right here, right? And uh, you find yourself, anybody like to read? Anybody like to read? You read a little bit, and then you find yourself asking the question, okay, so this guy thinks this is the most important, this guy thinks this is the most important, this girl thinks this is the most, okay, what's the most important? I mean, are, they, are any of them even important, right? So that's, that's kind of what you find yourself asking. But this, this passage is of crucial importance, and I guess we could probably say that just about every Sunday, right? Because all of God's Word is crucial, and all of it is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's given to us from God. And he intended us to have all of it. But one good question to ask whenever you're studying God's word is this. What is this passage crucial for? Or in other words, what might we be missing if we did not have this text here? And that helps you to understand what the point of that passage is all about and why it's so important. And I believe this passage this morning is crucial especially for two things, for the health of our local body, our local church, Walnut Park Baptist Church. I think there are some things in here that are really important for us to understand if we are going to continue to be a healthy church. But I think it's also crucial for our own individual spiritual health. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you will not go very far in your Christian growth, in your own personal sanctification, until you grasp the truths in this passage this morning. But when you do understand the truths in this passage, it has the potential to unleash a surge of growth as a believer in Jesus with long-lasting implications. Now, that's, that's a pretty big claim And so I'd like to prove that to you. I'd like to prove to you why I think this passage is so crucial for your own spiritual growth. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to jump in here, but before we jump in, a lot of times when we jump in, I like to uh, give you, right before we jump in, I like to give you like the two, three, or four points that we're going to cover. So that way you kind of have an idea of where we're going. But this morning, my outline is kind of in the form of sentences that kind of build on each other. And so that's why the points in your bulletin, if you're following along, that's why they're all blanks, okay? I usually like to just give them to you, but this, this time they're all blanks. So you got you to gotta pay attention. This is, uh, since we're getting back to school, we're trying these teacher tactics here. So 
Um, but let's start with this. The first one here is people long to feel good about themselves. People long to feel good about themselves. Now, I want to be clear on something with this one. I think uh, this, this first point, it's not absolutely explicit in the text. Okay? And I think it's important when we're preaching, it's really important that we distinguish between the clear teaching of the text and an educated consideration. Like, it's important for us that, like, as you study God's, words, God's Word, there are some things that you come across, you're like, wow, this is obvious, this is clear, this does not really take much uh, study, it doesn't really take much, take much understanding, it's really obvious. And then there's some things that you read, and as you're studying, you're like, okay, I think this is how this connects with this, but I'm not positive, I think. And it's important, I think it's important for me to just tell you that this is one of those things. I think this is what this text, so there's a difference between this is what this means, and I think this is what this text means. And so this first one is, I think this is what this text means. Uh, But when I read this text, I think what we see behind the scribes and the Pharisees and their question is a desire to prove themselves. Like, they want to feel good about themselves here. And let me show you why I think that. First of all, in verse 1, we meet these Pharisees. And these are probably like local Pharisees, people who lived around the area of Gennesaret, wherever. And so they're they're probably these local Pharisees. But the Pharisees were not alone. The Pharisees, it says, with some of the scribes. Okay, so the scribes were a little bit more authoritative. But these aren't just any scribes. Did you catch this? Some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So these are like big shots. Like, these are like, I mean, these scribes were people who gave their lives to study the, the Old Testament. And so, if you had a question about the Bible or about God, you went to a scribe, and their word was authoritative. Like, if they said it, then that's really what it meant. And so, scribes were like the big shots, but these are big shots from Jerusalem. Like, they had actually traveled all the way from Jerusalem to kind of talk about Jesus and, and you know, figure out what's really going on here. And so, these are big shots. Okay, and so, but I think you also pick this desire to feel good about themselves up in the tone of their question. Okay, can't you almost, can't you almost sense this? Can't you almost hear this as Ted was reading? Could you, can't you almost hear the tone of their question? I mean, here it is uh, in, verse, is it, is in verse 5. Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands. What plebeians. <laughs> I mean, can't, can't you almost pick this up from them as they're reading this? They're like, they're not, they're not, talking, they're not talking horizontally, they're talking down. <laughs> they're talking down to Jesus. Like, come on, are you serious? I mean, it is, it is interesting how, like, people who are really proud about how spiritual they are, they sort of just talk different, Right? They sort of just like, you know, they, 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 they really say really important things, and their voice sort of changes when they start to talk about the Bible, and especially when they talk about God, right? I mean, they just, it's just, like, there's just, you can almost sense this derogatory tone in their, in their voice as they're speaking to Jesus. And this is how Mark seems to portray the scribes and the Pharisees all throughout his gospel. 
And so I think what we can take away from this is that people like to feel good about themselves. They want to be on the high ground and look down at others. And so here's the question. What do people do when they want to feel good about themselves? And this part is clear. This is not just my educated speculation. This, is, this part's very clear in the text. When people want to feel good about themselves, we create rules that are attainable. We create rules that are attainable. And I just want to let you know, this is going to be the longest point in the message. So if we get towards the end of this point, you're like, okay, we still have two more. <laughs> Those are going to go quick, all right? But, but I want to show you this to you. This is, this is extremely important. This is the heart of the message here. Okay, so let me show you this to you. People want, or we create rules that are attainable. Okay, look at verse number three. Uh, we see this word, this, this phrase that keeps coming up all throughout this this, uh, the, the, these first several verses here, okay? Holding to the tradition of the elders. And then towards the end of verse 4, and there are many other traditions they observe. And then, uh, let's see here, verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. End of verse 9. Rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Okay, so what's going on here with tradition? What, what does he mean by tradition? Okay, so all traditions are bad and you should never do them and you should never have traditions. You should always come up with something new. All right, let's close our Bibles. That's it. No, that's not what he means. That's not what he's saying at all. Okay, what is going on with this tradition? Let me give you some background to help you understand What's going on with these traditions of the elders here? So, after the close of the Old Testament, okay, so all the way back several hundred years before Jesus came, after the close of the Old Testament, a group of scribes began to formally pass down an oral tradition that basically gave practical examples of how the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, how they were supposed to be lived out. So it was almost like an application book, except it wasn't a book at first. It was just like oral teachings. And eventually, these oral teachings, they would begin to be passed down, and eventually they were actually codified in a book. They were actually formed into a book. They were written down. And it was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is actually still a book that Jews reference today. But it was this application book. I mean, it gave every possible detail. I mean, it, it thought about every possible circumstance that you would find yourself in in life. And based on all of these circumstances, this is how you should do this. Okay, so, so make sure, you know, if this one unclean t thing touches this other unclean that you happen to touch at this particular time, then you need to make sure you wash really well. And you need to wash in this particular way. But if it touched this other thing that happened to un impurify it, then, you know, then, then you didn't have to wash because, you know, this happened and this happened. And it gave every possible, I mean, just every possible uh, circumstance in life that you could possibly think of. That's what the Mishnah covered. It explained all of these things. But here's what would happen. You'd have one scribe who would kind of give their own interpretation. This is what it means to follow Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13. And he would write it down. Or he would, he would give it orally. 
and he would teach the next generation. Okay, and that next generation, they, they would learn what it means to follow Leviticus chapter 27, verse 13. And then that next scribe in the next generation would say, oh yeah, and here's what it means to follow Numbers chapter 23 and Numbers chapter 11 and Numbers chapter... Okay, and so he'd give his interpretation. And then both of those would be passed down to the next generation. And then the person in the next generation would receive all of that, add a little bit more, and pass it down again. And then that person would receive, add a little bit more, and pass it down again. All right, so you can begin to imagine how extensive this teaching was. And it was extremely extensive. It covered every possible situation you could think of. And in fact, about 25% of the entire Mishnah deals with questions of purity and impurity. I mean, all of these washing things. And that's why Mark takes some time to actually explain some of their procedures. So, if you remember, Mark is writing, when he's writing his gospel, he's writing to Gentile believers probably in Rome. That's who he's writing to. And the Roman believers, just like us, they don't they're like, I don't know all these practices. I have no idea what you're talking about. Washing what? What? When? Why? Okay, so, and that's why, Mark, in many of your modern translations, you see these parentheses in verses 3 and 4. So, he says, parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come, in, come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, okay? And I think you get the picture. So they have all these traditions that they followed. It was their application of what it meant to follow the written word of God. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the reason they had these traditions in the first place was to be sure to practice careful purity, Like, they weren't necessarily trying to be legalistic. That wasn't what they were trying to do. The Mishnah actually describes itself as a fence around the Torah to help you stay within the guidelines of the Torah. That's what it thought, that's what it was meant to be. It was considered to be a way to understand how to live out what God had called them to. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Their tradition became equated with the written words of God. And that's why these scribes and the Pharisees were questioning Jesus' disciples in the first place. Because they thought that it was just as important to, to follow their traditions as it was to follow God's word. So they equated the two. They equated the two and said, they're basically the same. So, Okay, now if you're, if you're not really into history, or if I just lost you in the last three minutes and all of this explanation, then let me get your attention back, because this is really, really important. This is absolutely vital. Tradition is not bad. Tradition's not bad. Every single culture has a way of following God's Word. So we have the written Word of God, and every single culture applies how to follow God's word in different ways. And that's not bad. We should do that. There are good traditions that help us to follow God's word. So tradition is not bad. But tradition can never trump God's written word. The way we are used to doing things around here can never be more important 
than the written word of God. Because this is truth that does not change. And our tradition can never be more important than the written word of God. But that's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. So look at what Jesus said that they were doing. Look at verse 7. He's quoting Isaiah 29 here, and he says, They are teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. So they're, or the commandments of men. So they're taking their own commandments, and they're saying this is just as important as Scripture. They're equating the two. They're elevating their tradition to the status of Scripture. And let me just say, it's not just the Jews that did this and do this. There are many world religions that elevate tradition to the status of Scripture. So my wife and I used to live in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the dominant religion in Salt Lake City, Utah, teaches that the president of that religion has the authority to reinterpret Scripture. So if he says something, then that's what goes. So what have they done? They've elevated tradition to the status of Scripture. And it's not, just, it's not just them. Many world religions, Roman Catholicism and other strands of religions, emphatically teach that tradition is equal with Scripture. So the top dog in this religious system has the authority to rewrite truth. They can change truth. But the problem, the problem is that if tradition is equal with Scripture then can there really ever be real truth? Because tradition is always changing. It's always evolving. So that means that there can be no tradition. I mean, there can be no truth. Because tradi- if tradition is the same as truth, and tr- tradition is always changing, then there can't really be truth. It's just not coherent. But I think there's an even greater reason. There's an even greater reason to reject tradition as equal with Scripture. And I think we find that in Jesus' response to the scribes here. You know, I, I, I don't know if you caught this, but if you just think about this for a second, when Jesus, Jesus is responding to the scribes and the Pharisees, who is Jesus? He is, as John describes him, the Word. <laughs> Literally, whatever he speaks is ultimate truth. He is the one who has all authority. But how does this one who has all authority relate to these scribes. What does, does he just say, oh yeah, because I said so? Well, sometimes in the Gospels, he does say that. And that's okay, because he is the all-authoritative one. But what does he do here? I think it's really interesting what he does here. Who does Jesus point them to when he's talking about truth? Look at verse, I believe, verse 10. He says, for Moses said, He is pointing these scribes and these Pharisees back to the written word of God, the Old Testament. He said, Moses said. So even the all-authoritative one, who could just say, I say it, (laughs) he actually points them back to the written word of God. And you know what that tells us? The Bible is truth that we can count on. It's truth that we can count on. It never changes, and it can be trusted. The written word of God can be trusted. And any tradition we hold must conform to God's written word and what it already says. So, 
we've talked quite a bit about this. Let's talk for a second about why is this important? I mean, why, why is this such a big deal? I mean, are we just making mountains out of molehills? Are we no better than the scribes and the Pharisees who are just making a big deal out of little minutiae? <laughs> okay, why, why is this so important? Why does it matter that we hold to, hold to Scripture and weigh our traditions against Scripture? Because look what happens when you equate tradition with Scripture. Okay, let's, let's just read again this example that Jesus gives in verses 9 through 13. Starting in verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, this is the written word of God, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is, this is God's truth. But in verse 11, he says, but you say, here's the tradition, well, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained, oh, sorry, if a man tells his father or his mother, <laughs> that's how they would say it, right? Whatever you have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And here's what, ha- here's what ends up happening. Thus making void the word of God by your own tradition that you've handed down. So what is this Corban business? I mean, what is he talking about here? What's going on with, with this? Corbin was an Old Testament practice that we actually can read about in Leviticus and Numbers and Ezekiel. It refers to an offering that is dedicated to God alone. And so, let me just give you like a today's terms. Okay, this is what this would be like in today's terms. Let's just say that your parents are starting to get old and you are having to think about how to take care of them in their old age. Or maybe more accurately, they are starting to think about how you are going to take care of them in their old age. And uh, they think to themselves, oh, it's no worry. Uh, My kids, they have some money, and so they'll take care of me. So we'll be all good. Uh, But you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of expensive. Like, that costs a lot of money. I don't really want to pay for that. Or maybe you're even thinking to yourself, well, man, think of all the things that I could do with that money. And so you decide that you're going to pull out this really neat trick. And you say all your possessions are Corbin, which means they're all devoted to God. And then your parents come around and they start talking about, you know, yeah, it's about, you know, we're, we're getting to that age and we're going to need some help. And, and they kind of make some comments that seem to assume that, that they're counting on your money to take care of their needs. And so you just stop them right there in, your tra- in their tracks. And you're like, whoa, whoa, okay, mom and dad, hold on just a second. Hold on right there. Okay, I just want you to know, right before you start to make plans, I want you to know all my possessions, every last bit, is Corbinized. I just made that up. Okay, but it's Corbinized, right? It's, uh, so it's all dedicated to God. And so I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to get any of it. It's all dedicated to God. So I can't give it to you to take care of your needs. I just can't. And in fact... I mean, if, if we're in keeping with this tradition, what would happen is you might come to, uh, let's say I'm a scribe, okay? And so you would come to me and you would say, uh, you would say Jordan, uh, P- Mr. Scribe, uh, what should I do? My parents asked for money, but I've already dedicated all my possessions to God. If I were a scribe, here's what I would say. Oh, I'm so sorry. You can't give it to your parents. I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus said. You don't, he's talking to the scribes, you don't permit him to do anything for his parents. 
the scribe would actually tell them, I'm sorry, you can't give any money to your parents because that money is dedicated to God. And Corbin is an oath. And God takes oaths very seriously. And so you can't, I mean, you made an oath, you can't break it, you cannot give that money. You can, even if you wanted to, you couldn't give that money to your parents. Okay, but here's the kicker. Corbin did not mean that you had to give your money to God all right now. In fact, there was no stipulation on when you gave that money to God and really even how you gave that money to God. So, let's just say, uh, back to our example here, let's just say that you want to uh, buy a new car. You want to buy a new car, but your money's Corbinized. So, what are you going to do? Well, you come to me and you say, Mr. Scribe, okay, just can you help me out with this? I'd like to buy a vehicle. You know what I would say? Oh, well, you know what? A brand new vehicle, that would allow you to maybe pick somebody else up on the way to church. And so, really, you would be buying that 2023 Porsche 911 Turbo for Jesus, because it would help you to get to church faster, and you're always late to church. So why don't we give you a nice car, get you fast, you can get to church, right? Uh, because it would help you. I mean, so, so that counts as something devoted to God. Okay, are you beginning to see the hypocrisy here? I mean, isn't this, doesn't this start to just be just disgusting in your mouth? Oh, you can't use that money for your parents because you devoted it to God, but you can go and spend it on yourself all you want. Do you see the hypocrisy? That is what Corbin essentially amounted to. And this is why Jesus says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. You see, here is the problem with equating Scripture with tradition. When you make a big deal about something that's not clear in the Bible, you are essentially disregarding what God has said. I've heard it said this way, and I think this is really good. Whenever you are dogmatic about things that aren't clear in Scripture, eventually you'll be inconsistent. Let me say it again. Whenever you are dogmatic about things that aren't clear in Scripture, eventually you will be inconsistent. And Pastor Wood has mentioned this before, but this is why we preach what's called expositionally, verse by verse. So last week, we looked at Mark chapter 6. Today, we're in Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23. Next week, Pastor Wood's going to preach verse 24 through whatever's next. But this is why we do this. This is why we preach verse by verse. Because what Jordan thinks really does not matter. Okay? This is a tradition. What I'm preaching right now, this is a tradition. This is, a, this, is a, this is how we apply this text in our current context. But this is nowhere near this. And this is God's word. This is truth. And our traditions cannot become more important than what God's word says. Now, before we move on, I'd like to quickly make some application. Because we said that the Jews made a big deal about their traditions. And Mormons make a big deal about the same, and so do Roman Catholics and other religions. But remember, in the second point, I said, we create rules that are attainable. So how do we do this? In what ways do we look like these scribes 
and Pharisees. And I think we can apply this both on the church level and also on an individual level. So as a church, let me just apply this on the church level. As a church, it is vitally important that we distinguish between the actual words of Scripture and our own applications of Scripture. So let me see if I can give you some examples. Like the programs that our church runs. We have lots of programs. And those are applications of scriptural principles. So the Bible says this, and and then we say, okay, we're going to do this program because this is going to help give us some structure to carry out this command in Scripture. Okay, so, so an example. Scripture clearly teaches that we are to disciple each other. To, to understand who God is, what His Word is. We're called to raise up the next generation. That is a truth of Scripture that will not change. But the way we apply that directive is through all kinds of different programs. Things like leadership journey and life groups. Having a youth group. Even something like Awana or Sunday school. You're like, well, okay, wait, hold on, wait a minute. Sunday school? All right, I know that's somewhere in here, right? This is, right? No, Sunday school is just an application. It hasn't existed for all time. It is an application of a good... Now, these are good traditions. There is a reason why we do these traditions. Because they help us to carry out God's Word in our context. But they're just traditions. And they can never be placed over God's Word. Here's another example. Scripture calls us to sing together as we gather in worship every Sunday. Okay, that is a clear teaching of Scripture. And the most important instrument in the room every Sunday is your voice. That's the most important instrument because that's what Scripture's called us to. But we have all kinds of traditions that help us to do that. I mean, the actual songs that we use, the different arrangements that we use. Even just having a music team here on stage is a tradition. Or having a choir. Or the, even the specific instruments that we use to help us sing. All of these things are traditions, They are applications that help us follow God's Word, but they are not God's Word. And here's the point. Our traditions can change, they will change, and they even should change as we live in different contexts. I mean, if you think about it, 400 years ago, almost none of those traditions I just mentioned were used in the church. Almost none. And if you think about it, Probably in 400 more years, if, God, if, if the Lord does not return, in about 400 years, probably all of our traditions will be completely different. There will be different ways of doing things. But God's Word never changes. And that is extremely important. But let me also apply this on the individual level, because I think we do this individually also. Remember I said that we long to feel good about ourselves, and so we create rules that are attainable. Now, kids do this all the time, right? Kids, I got some of your attention. Uh, But parents, I'll get your attention with this too, okay? Um, So kids do this all the time. Okay, so, all right, young child, uh, mommy is sleeping, and so do not wake mommy up, okay? All right, five minutes later, guess who's awake? (laughs) All right, young child, why is mommy awake? Well, I didn't really wake her up. It was just, you know, I just uh, kind of opened the door of the room and I just was playing this really loud instrument that you gave me and, and, and that instrument happened to wake mommy up. Okay, young child. All right, that's very good. All right, very, all right not very good. But okay, young child, here's what I'd like you to do. Do not set foot in mommy's room. 
Five minutes later, guess who's awake again? Mommy's awake. Oh, okay, young child, why is mommy awake? Well, I didn't step foot in the room. I just opened the door, and I, I, I sat right here, and I continued to play my instrument. Okay, uh, young child, here's, okay, that's, oh, that's mommy's room. I, right over here is another line, and I want you to play, do not cross this line, and do not play the accordion or the piano or the, the flute or the guitar, or, uh, and don't play with the stuffed animal, and don't, and this is why we end up with all these really specific rules, right? <laughs> these re- weird and specific rules. Why? Because kids kind of like the rules, because then you can go as close to the line, and you're not literally crossing the line, but you're still essentially crossing the line, right? But we do this too. Adults do this too. We do this all the time. We like these lines because then we can feel good about ourselves while still really getting what our heart wanted in the first place, right? So, taking some examples from what Jesus gives in verses 21 and 22. We might say, oh, I didn't commit sexual immorality because in that movie I watched, I mean, they were all fully clothed. I mean, so check that box. I'm, re- I'm, I'm doing good. But, but wait a minute, really? What is your heart in that? What is your heart desire in that? Well, I didn't really steal from the company because uh, they, they, they didn't give me what I deserved. And so I, I, I actually really earned it anyways. And so it wasn't really stealing. And, and I also might give it back later. Okay, so regardless of whatever line you've drawn, that in your mind, this, this is what stealing looks like. Where was your heart in that? What was your heart? What did you really want? Well, I didn't really lie. I wasn't deceitful because, you know, I mean, I, I fashioned my words in just such a way that it was technically true. So, so I didn't lie. Check that box. I feel good about myself. But what was your heart's intention? Was your heart's intention to deceive even by saying just the right words? Where is your heart? Well, I didn't really slander that person because, you know, I was just being honest. You know, I, I was just kind of just, uh, just being honest, that's all. Well, really, what is your heart attitude towards that person? And we could take the whole list that Jesus gives in verse 21 and 22, and we could do this. Because we're all really good at this. We like lines so that we feel really spiritual even when our heart is far from God. So we create these rules that are attainable ultimately so that we can get what we really want. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees were labeled by the Lord of creation as hypocrites. Because at the very moment where they appeared to be spiritual by checking all the boxes, that was the very moment where their true heart clearly showed a disdain for God and his word. And so this is what Jesus wanted us to understand. We long to feel good about ourselves, so we create rules that are attainable. But here's what we need to understand. Our sin goes deeper than we like to think. This is point number three. Our sin goes deeper than we think. Because see, if I can create if I can create a list of boxes to check, then I feel really good about myself while at the same time getting the evil desire that's in my heart. But Jesus never wanted us to simply check a box. He never wanted us to simply follow the rules. He doesn't want machines. He wants a relationship. Jesus wants 
your heart. This was Jesus' whole point in explaining to the crowd, what goes into a person doesn't defile, because it, it, it passes through and it ends up in the bathroom. Okay? What, goes, what comes out of the heart is what really matters, because your heart, in, Gre- in Greek, the heart is like the, the spiritual part of you. It's, 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 it's where your emotions come out of. It's your intellectual understanding, and it even includes your will, your, your ability to choose. Your heart represents who you really are at the core. And that, that's, this is what God wants. God wants you. He wants relationship with you. He doesn't want a machine. He wants a relationship. And this is why our sin is so much deeper than we like to think. Because at the core, our sin is not just a matter of what we do, it's a matter of what we want and even down to who we are. And the tragedy of our sin is not just that we do sinful deeds, the tragedy of our sin is that we want it more than we want God. Our sin runs deep in us. And if this is the case, if our sin runs deep in us, if it reaches all the way into the deep recesses of our heart, then what we need is not a list of do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts never saved anyone. And do's and don'ts never grew any Christian. Do's and don'ts are utterly powerless against sin. No, what we need is a heart, capital T, transformer. Our sin is deep, and so we need a great Savior. We need a great Savior. And Jesus came to do deep rescue. I mean, he declared all foods clean. He fulfilled the law. And he didn't come to argue over external particulars. He didn't come to put a band-aid over sin and say, all right, let's just try a little bit better next time. Let's just, you know, you just do a little bit better next time and you'll be better. No, Jesus came to give us a heart transplant to change us from the inside out. He is a great Savior. Last week, we looked at how he fed 5,000 people plus. Next week, we're going to see him feed 4,000 people plus. He is the all-powerful God who came to this earth to die in our place so that we could experience life transformation from the inside out. And so if you're here this morning and you have not yet believed into Jesus, you're not yet a Christ follower, then turn to Jesus because he is your only hope. No list of things to do will ever make you good enough to come into God's presence. Jesus is your only hope. So turn to him today to be rescued from your sinful heart. And what about those of us who are followers of Christ? What should we take away from a passage like this? Well, I think first we should ask, where is your heart? Do you find yourself justifying your behavior because you didn't physically, literally cross the line in your mind? But at the same time, you know that your heart wanted something other than God. 
Can I encourage you to a little practice here? Let me encourage you to take the list in verses 21 through 22 and meditate on how each of these show up in your heart. Not if they show up in your heart, but how they show up in your heart. Because if you're like me, I think all of us, we like to think of ourselves as a lot more spiritual than we really are. And so take some time to meditate on how these vices show up in your heart. And if you're like me, then you come to a point where when you start to really look at your heart, when you actually really get a real picture of what your heart looks like, it is devastating and sometimes downright discouraging. Why do I want this over and over again? God, why do I keep wanting my own way? Why do I keep turning from you? Why is my heart constantly just in vex and turmoil and and constantly trying to go my own way? And let the weight of your sinful heart pull you into a posture of humility. God, I am so inclined to my own way. Even though I'm your child, I'm constantly longing for my own way. So confess your sinful inclinations and your desires to God. And this will bring you low. <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you really, if you are really honest with, your own, with yourself, this will bring you low. But at that moment, when you are low, when you are humbled by your own sin, at that very moment, consider the fact that God loves you still. He loves you. And his love for you has not changed one bit despite your evil inclinations, despite your evil desires. His love has not changed for you one bit. And loved ones, that is where true heart transformation takes place. Because when I see the depths of my heart, and I know, I know that I do not deserve love, and I feel that I don't deserve love, and I'm convinced there is no reason why anyone should love me, because this is how sinful I am. But then I consider the fact that God loves me even there. (laughs) Then what happens in my heart is a transformation. If God loves me even even down there, oh, then I want him. (laughs) And do you know what begins to happen? We begin to follow God's word. (laughs) We begin to live out the gospel. All the imperatives in the New Testament, we begin to actually just do them. Not because, not because it's a list of rules that I need to check off, but because my heart actually wants it. When I see my sin and I see the love of Jesus, I say, Jesus, I want you. And that is how lives are transformed. That is how Christians truly grows. And that is what God desires. God delights in transforming hearts. So will you let him transform yours? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text that we have, Mark chapter 7. We thank you that it pinpoints our hearts. Thank you that it exposes our self-righteousness and reminds us that we are desperate sinners because that's true whether we realize it or not. And so we thank you for your kindness in showing it to us so that then we could look to you and experience real transformation. And Lord, we pray that this week, as we just let this text meditate in our minds and run over again and again in our minds, Lord, would you begin to work real heart transformation in us? Would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen.